Back it comes to you, Sven de Vestesen. Little knock forward, but back to it. What a glorious day it was. After decades as a pariah state, South Africa had rejoined the community of nations once more. To celebrate the end of apartheid and triumph of democracy, the country hosted the Rugby World Cup in 1995. Now, you couldn't have written a better script if you tried, and in fact Clint Eastwood turned the story into a Hollywood film called Invictus. You see, the New Zealand team looked invincible, powered by a young, Goliath-like winger named Jonah Lomu. But the farm boys of the Rainbow Nation fought like lions, and they snatched victory that sent the country into raptures. As the crowd chanted the name of their beloved new president, Nelson Mandela handed the trophy to the Springbok captain. And then, famously, he said, Thank you for what you've done for South Africa. At that, the Springbok captain... A bread-in-the-bone Afrikaans raised to believe blacks were inferior and Nelson Mandela a terrorist, even more famously replied, No, sir, thank you for what you have done for South Africa. But today, as South Africa marks its 25th birthday and heads to the polls once more, that warm glow is gone. South Africans today are frustrated, disappointed, angry, and bitterly divided. The economy is in bad shape, unemployment is soaring, inequality is worsening, corruption is rife. Mandela's promise of a new South Africa seems a distant memory now. What went wrong in the last 25 years? What went right? And here's something to consider. Think of South Africa as the canary in our coal mine. As it goes, so we will go. Listen on, and I'll tell you why. I'm John Rapley. Welcome to Subversity. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. The moment to bridge the chasm that divides us has come. The time to build is upon us. Because we have reached a moment, I think, in South Africa where, it's, in a sense, it is a breaking point. I, sus- I expect a large percentage to give the ANC one more chance, but I think it is going to be the last chance. Bongani Nkulunga is the director of the Johannesburg Institute of Advanced Study. We sat down recently at the Institute offices to discuss the evolution of South Africa since the end of apartheid in 1994. The political segment in 1994 was an accommodation of sorts. Um, It was an accommodation that while you could continue maintaining what you could call white class privilege, that over time there would be accommodation of of black people and that you could deal with the legacy of racial inequality over time. As the son of a miner who grew up to become both one of South Africa's leading public intellectuals and a senior staff member in the country's presidency, Bongani has been better placed than most to observe the evolution of the country's politics over the last quarter century. That political settlement to which he refers explains why the largely white crowd chanted Nelson Mandela's name so lovingly back in 1995. 
After decades of fearing that black majority rule would unleash a racial bloodbath and destroy all their privileges, white South Africans found that President Mandela really meant it when he said he wanted to bring about reconciliation. Black people got the vote. They got first crack at the good jobs. But white people got to keep their land, their houses, and their businesses. The African National Congress, which Mandela led and which still governs South Africa, has always been a big tent. But there's always been a competition for influence at the top between what you might call the socialist and capitalist wings, or if you will, left and right. During Mandela's presidency, from 1994 to 1999, and even more so under his successor, Thabo Mbeki, the right flank prevailed. Rather than redistribute the mostly white-owned economy to the majority of South Africans, the government opted to keep things pretty much as they were. The hope was that if the politicians didn't rock the boat, the economy would keep growing, generating enough resources for the government to build houses and give jobs to poor people. This system worked well enough for a while, The ANC today boasts that since 1994 it's built over 3 million houses, provided welfare benefits to nearly 18 million poor people, doubled the proportion of homes with electricity, and given almost all South Africans access to clean water. Yes, the economy remained almost overwhelmingly white-owned, but even there, policies to encourage black business to form and white businesses to take on black executives were starting to bear fruit. But then... One September morning in 2008, things took a sharp turn for the worse. This is going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. I don't think anyone really expected a bank. The crash of Lehman Brothers triggered what would quickly become the biggest financial crash in history. For a few weeks, it looked like the entire global economy might collapse. Quick and desperate action by the world's governments and central banks pulled it back from the brink. But much of the planet saw its economy fall backwards, and South Africa was no exception. And although the economy was back on the move by 2010, it never returned to its earlier health and dynamism. South Africa had entered a new, more frugal era, and that meant new jobs and opportunities weren't coming fast enough to satisfy the young people entering the job market. The 1994 model of reconciliation began to sputter. And as conditions in South Africa worsened, xenophobic riots erupted in poor townships, as poor people blamed foreigners for bringing crime and stealing jobs. The Rainbow Nation was starting to look blood red. This morning, some 50 immigrant shacks outside Johannesburg were set alight. The dead and the wounded are immigrants from across southern Africa. They've been beaten, stabbed, hacked with machetes, and even burnt alive. They are saying we're taking their jobs, etc. And I don't think that's the real truth thing that we're taking their jobs. They're just doing it for this advantage of, I mean, like taking out things, I mean, and selling them. These images, so reminiscent of apartheid, now prompting calls for the army to be deployed on the streets. Prompting, too, a bout of soul-searching in the so-called Rainbow Nation. In 2009, 
South Africa elected a new president, one Jacob Zuma. On the surface, his first year in office was a good one. In 2010, just as the economy was finding its feet again, South Africa hosted the Football World Cup. For a whole month, it felt like 1995 all over. All South Africans, white, black, and brown, joined in a month-long celebration of togetherness. The noise of the Vuvuzelas was deafening as a huge crowd turned out for a pre-tournament parade to cheer the national team they called Bafana Bafana, the boys. And then, in the opening match, this happened. It's a really good ball. It's Shabalala! When Sipue Chabalala opened the tournament with a spectacular goal that sliced open the Mexican defence, well, the country lost it. And even though South Africa went out in the group stage, it hardly mattered. Once again, the Rainbow Nation had heroes in the field to match their beloved Nelson Mandela, who capped the tournament with an appearance at the final match. But beneath that happy surface, things in the country were going badly. As Bangani and Kulunga describes it, the ascent of Jacob Zuma to the presidency represented a shift to the socialist wing in the ANC. But driving his rise was something more prosaic, the yearning of many in the black middle class who hadn't yet benefited from the 1994 political settlement and wanted to speed things up a bit. During the Mbeki years, the government had nurtured the emergence of a black business class, but this benefited only a sliver of the population. And so, after 15 years of democracy, during which the numbers of young black people who got university degrees expanded rapidly, there was a large and growing middle class who felt excluded from this elitist system. Unfortunately, as Bongani explains, they took control of the country at almost exactly the wrong time to implement their plans. At the, towards the end of the Mbeki presidency that actually the 1994 political settlement was not saving everybody. There was a lot of criticism that you know, there were the black elite uh, who were on a gravy train. There was a lot of talk about that at the time. The criticism of uh, the black economic empowerment program. And, and so these are the people who pushed Zuma to the presidents of the ANC and the country. But the fundamentals had not changed even then. In fact, uh, when he became president in 2009, we had had the financial crisis in 2008. In fact, the situation was worse than um, it was before he became president. <clears throat> and so, um, so what you ended up having were few, <clears throat> especially the Gupta family, people who had access to him, who wanted basically state tenders. Um, and they used the access to him to get those state tenders. I mean, what, what was interesting about it actually is not that they wanted the tenders themselves, basically they, they got commissions. So it's like, okay, I mean, if you want a, a business from government, we can make you get this if you give us 10% or whatever percentages. 
which was different from the accumulation strategy followed under the Mbegi administration, which was the creation of black entrepreneurs. And so to understand the corruption under the Zuma presidency, we have to understand once again the economic crisis in South Africa, which led to the shrinking of the economic pie, which meant those who could get the little had to have close relationships with the political elite, I mean, to get access to very limited resources. The Gupta family, to which Bongani refers, were an India-born family of businessmen who emigrated to South Africa in 1993. They were prescient enough to sponsor the rise of Jacob Zuma in the ANC and built close business ties to members of his family. So when Zuma came to power, they were in pole position to influence the allocation of government contracts, those contracts which were meant to help build a black business class, but were now routinely given to cronies of the Guptas in return for the kickbacks Bongani mentions. As much as a trillion rand, by some estimates, left the economy this way, and the country was saddled with broken public enterprises, degraded services, and a culture of corruption. Investment plunged and the economy worsened. The state, as everyone in South Africa began saying, had been captured by a handful of rich, corrupt capitalists. Support for the ANC began to crumble, and after the party lost control of several big cities and municipal elections, the grey suits decided enough was enough. Last year, Jacob Zuma was forced out of office. His deputy, Cyril Ramaphosa, I'd like to thank all the members of this assembly. I thank you for the honor that you bestow on me by electing me to this position. I truly feel humbled to have been given this great privilege of being able to serve our people. When one is elected in this type of position, you basically become a servant of the people of South Africa. And I'll seek to execute that task. Now, tell me if this story sounds familiar. After the economy has opened up, a small group of metropolitan elites reap the benefits, while most of the rest of the population feel left behind, angry, They turn on foreigners, blaming them for taking their jobs and raping their women. They abandon the politicians who say they are making gradual progress to look for a saviour who says he'll shake up the system and make the jobs come back now. That's South Africa today. It's also America and Britain and much of the Western world. And that the story should sound so similar is no accident. South Africa is the Western world in a nutshell. Imperialism created an economy in which small white islands of prosperity were surrounded by darker-skinned seas of labour reserves. Much as Western countries profited from the cheap labour and lopsided trading agreements with the ex-colonies of the developing world. And, when Western economies began slowing in the 1970s, governments allowed their firms to lay off their workers and move their plants to the developing world. Just as South Africa's business class pushed for the end of apartheid, so that they could get access to cheap black workers. As happened in Western countries, a small, globalized elite 
has reaped most of the benefits of this opening, leaving the mass behind. In South Africa, the left behind are sometimes turning to the economic freedom fighters, a party led by a firebrand named Julius Malema. Malema calls for the seizure of white-owned land and says a socialist economy will create employment for all. The record of radical populism like this in countries like Venezuela leaves little reason to hope that could work. Nevertheless, the failures of the Rainbow Nation to meet the hopes of those born after apartheid means that some angry young people are turning to Malema for solutions. And as Bungani Inkulunga of the Johannesburg Institute of Advanced Study explains, the anger spreading in South Africa is pushing the country to the brink. I think it is a broad trend. I mean, there is a crisis of political parties in, in South Africa. I mean, um, and I think a distrust of politics and politicians that I don't think we have ever seen mm-hmm. in, a, in a long time. I mean, I think in Western societies, actually, it's probably more widespread than has been the case in South Africa. I mean, the notion that politicians are in for themselves, I mean, are self-interested, and that we cannot trust them. And, uh, and I think that view took hold under the Zuma presidency, both of the ANC and the country, because of corruption scandals, um, but actually it preceded the Zuma moment, as it were. There was a sense of disengagement, I mean, and, and the feeling that actually politics and politicians do not solve problems. And I think you saw it with what came to be called xenophobic attacks, mm. because it was quite extraordinary, because for a long time, um, South African society was quite politically organized. There were a few things that happened outside the ambit of political parties. Definitely not outside the ambit of the ANC and its political allies. And I think what you have seen in the past decade or so is a lot, a lot of Firstly, political initiatives outside the ANC, which means that it is weakening. But, and just also, it's just a general disengagement from politics, which I think portends quite badly for the future of South Africa, because we have a history of uh, collective violence, I mean, in a sense, because the crime that people, the violence that people talk about is individualized violence, I mean, where people do something to you, but we also have a history of collective political violence. I mean, so if people act outside of recognized political formations, it could be political parties, it could be civic movements, then that is quite problematic for a country like South Africa with the problems it has. Bongani adds that if there's one thing South Africans of all colors agree upon, it's that the Rainbow Nation has let them down. Black people outside the privileged new elite have seen too little distribution of wealth. White people, having lost their privileged access to government jobs, policing, and schools, have watched things deteriorate and their children emigrate, yet still hear everyone else complain they haven't given up enough. It makes me think of John Osborne's 1956 play, Look Back in Anger. Set in 1950s Britain, 
as the country is losing its empire and following the big post-war redistribution of wealth, it portrays the marriage between a bright man from a working-class background and his upper-class wife. The archetype of the angry young man he spends much of the play railing against his wife. When in one scene her father expresses his bemusement, she says to him, You're hurt because everything has changed. Jimmy is hurt because everything is the same. That's South Africa today. It was meant to be so different. Bangani's own life story was supposed to be that of the Rainbow Nation back in 1994, Born to parents whose own opportunities were severely limited by a racist regime, he was now free to rise to the heights of career success and political influence. The problem is, post-apartheid South Africa has produced too few Bonganis. Instead, there are a lot of angry young people. Part of that is the fault of apartheid's legacy of an unequal society and rigid economy. Part is the fault of decisions taken since 1994. In particular, few South Africans will tell you the post-apartheid education system has served the needs of the generation born since independence. But if they're to overcome today's challenges, South Africans will need to find a way to pull together. It's an awful lot to ask. But if there's any reason to hope, it may be that they've done it before. They may yet have it in them to do it once more. Subversity is the university of the market square, taking academic debates out of this seminar room and back into the streets. Join the conversation. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook.